This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 95. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's episode, Handling Deponents with a Severe Speech Impediment. Hi again, and as always, I hope you're having an amazing day and week and that you're having spectacular success taking or defending depositions. Seems like it's getting hot early this year. It's almost 100 degrees outside my window at the moment. I was in Las Vegas a few weeks ago doing small group seminars, and it was over 100 degrees every day with a low in the 80s and a high of 108 degrees. And I thought to myself, this is what they mean by pain and suffering. One of the questions that came up was from a litigator representing a client who'd suffered a severe stroke. At the time that the client was to be deposed, she was still unable to clearly articulate her words to the point where you could not actually understand what she was saying about 90% of the time. And the question was, what to do? Well, it's a great question. And while you might think there aren't really any options other than to tough through the deposition, that's actually not the case. In a moment, I'll offer some great practical tips for preparing this kind of witness to testify and for opposing testimony from witnesses with speech impediments. And when I say opposing, I'm obviously not suggesting that anyone oppose such testimony just because. Rather, potential objections are tied to situations where the speech simply can't be made understandable or reliable, or where the speech is actually an indication of cognitive problems that go to basic competency issues. Speech defects can be caused by all kinds of traumas, including brain injuries, strokes, other issues that may go all the way back to birth. And the cases in the show notes for this episode uh, give us a good sense for what random last minute planning might look like in these situations. And these are of course, again, from actual cases and the resulting reported decisions. There's one case, the McGee decision, where the court reporter out of frustration simply transcribed much of the speech impaired witnesses testimony as simply unintelligible. In the Reed case, the judge gave an instruction to the jury to simply raise their hands if they couldn't understand the answer, leaving it to the jury to figure out what it could understand and what it couldn't. Also in the Reed case, the judge allowed the court reporter to act as an interpreter for the witness, very unusual. And in the Parker and Trammell cases, the use of leading questions for witnesses with heavy speech impediments uh, to purportedly ease the examination. You know, this is definitely uh, not something to put aside until trial or to leave to chance. I recommend the moment you realize that your client or your deponent has a speech condition that leaves their verbal responses mostly unintelligible, that you consider hiring a speech language pathologist to work with your witness and if necessary, to function as a translator at the deposition and at trial. If your witnesses already have speech pathologists they work with, use them. If you have to hire one, have them evaluate your witness immediately to help you understand what assistive devices and or techniques can be used to maximize the value of your witness's testimony. And if you are facing an adverse witness with severe speech defects, you may wish to immediately hire what is commonly called a check translator, which is to say your own translator to literally check the translation 
of the translator hired by your adversary. Czech translators are hired for the same reasons, as you can imagine, that one side hires an expert to oppose an adversary's expert. You'll see the use of Czech translators referenced in the Cohen and the Effius cases in the show notes. When we think of interpreters or translators, we think of someone who's going to translate answers word for word from one language to another. The ultimate goal, of course, of a translator is simply to ensure that the witness's answers are presented accurately and understandably to the pertinent audience. And that's really where the speech language pathologist comes in. Most individuals with serious speech impediments will have encountered or will be using a speech pathologist, sometimes called speech therapists. If your witnesses have one, reach out to them immediately. Find out what the specific nature of the impediment is and the role that the therapist or pathologist can play in helping your witness uh, get ready to testify. If your witness regularly uses a speech pathologist, odds are very high that they will easily understand your witness's answers without assistance and much better than anyone else. If your witness, your client for purposes of our example, uh, does not have a speech therapist at the moment, then hire one for evaluation and assistance for upcoming testimony and do that as soon as possible. They can provide unbelievable value. It doesn't mean that the therapist is going to have to put your client or your witness through months of training. To the contrary, a pathologist or therapist can usually tell you very quickly the best way to communicate, whether verbally, through facial expressions, noises and gestures, head nods, thumbs up or thumbs down, and many other options. And they can also tell you about the assistive devices, many of which are absolutely unbelievable that are currently on the market. And to give you an example, if you've ever used voice recognition software, you know that you have to train the software to learn your particular way of pronouncing things. I use voice recognition software for virtually everything, and it learns my speech patterns and pronunciations over time. If you downloaded the same program, it would have to learn your particular speech patterns and nuances. And the point of that is that there are also uh, similar software programs specifically designed for people with speech defects that will learn their particular pronunciations over time and translate their speech into something that's crystal clear. Now, to give you an idea of what's out there, I've included a few links in the show notes of this episode to some of that software. All right, and what we see from the cases and the examples I gave is that the judicial system is not well situated to deal with speech impairments if you leave it to its own devices. You've got to get proactive on this. In the McGee case, a criminal defendant was on trial for robbery and the victim had a very serious speech impediment. As a result, the court reporter simply announced out loud that she could not understand most of what the witness, the victim, was saying and that those portions of the witness's testimony would appear in the official transcript as, quote, unintelligible, which of course indicates that the reporter was unable to understand that portion of the testimony because of the impediment. Well, that put both the prosecution and defense in a bad spot on appeal because it meant that the record, the eventual record for review, would be missing critical testimony by the victim. Whichever side lost would not be able to present a complete record to the appeals court. And you can't really blame the court reporter on this one. They cannot type what they can't certify, what they haven't heard, uh, was actually said. 
So what happened in McGee? Well, the defendant was convicted and of course appealed. On appeal, the court affirmed the conviction and said the following about the state of the record. Quote, no effort was made by anyone to show that what was inaudible or unintelligible to the court reporter was also inaudible or unintelligible to the jury. No effort was made to show that such answers were intelligible or were audible to anyone. If they were, no effort was made to show what the answers omitted from the transcript actually were. It appears that no effort was made to the trial court and no effort has been made to present to this court the language or the substance of the language of the witness that was allegedly inaudible or unintelligible to the court reporter. And so the appeals court in McGee concludes by saying that taking into account the entire record, it was hard for the court to say with any certainty that anything was omitted from the transcript that would have made a difference in the outcome of the trial. And that's what happens in depositions when we don't give advanced thought to witnesses with severe speech issues. The record will be an incomplete mess and the testimony that you need will not be captured. Even worse, a jury may falsely equate your client or your witness's inability to speak intelligibly with a lack of mental competency. So the use of a speech pathologist as a translator can be critical to the outcome of your case. All right, let's talk about some practical tips uh, on either side of the coin and then we'll wrap up. All right, first we'll start with situations where it's your witness or your client that has the speech issue. Tip number one, make sure you're aware from the outset of your case, whether your client or any witness you depend on has a severe speech impediment. Don't wait until after the deposition is over to see how it worked out, only to learn that you may have a considerable amount of testimony that is simply unusable. Court reporters will identify in the transcript any testimony they can't understand and they'll mark it as unintelligible. And they are not likely to tell you every time they use that label rather than when they type the actual answers. So assess whether you need a speech pathologist or similar translator. Point number two, find out if your witness already has one. It's quite likely that they do. And that's ideal because according to many of the decisions we found, courts are likely to allow a speech pathologist to function as a translator in cases where the pathologist has a long-standing relationship with the witness. Next point, if they don't have one, hire one to work with your deponent as you would any expert witness and to help you understand what the deponent needs to testify fully and accurately. It may just be a device, an assistive device, like some of those that we have in the show links, or it may be some combination of things like a device plus the use of nonverbal signals, such as hand gestures. If given enough time, the speech pathologist may also have time to train software to digitally translate what your client or witness is saying. As a footnote, I think I've seen statistics over time that say the average person uses about 7,000 words a day. But in the typical deposition, it's highly unlikely uh, that your deponent will use that many. And most of these devices that are available currently can be programmed to understand virtually all of the words that the witness is likely to use in the deposition. That's not gonna be 7,000. Next point, determine under your applicable rules what you need to present to a court 
to allow the use of devices or of a speech pathologist. Courts have generally said that the use of an interpreter and the extent to which he or she may be used in the examination of a witness is left to the sound discretion of the trial judge. That's the Reed case in the show notes. So confront this issue head on. You have to make sure that when the witness testifies, an accurate and complete record is what you get. Next pointer, videotape the deposition to provide an additional layer of proof as to what your deponent said. And last point, if you're on the side of the deponent, if necessary, ask the same preliminary qualifying questions at the outset of your deposition as you would with any witness where you need to establish competency to eliminate that as a basis for objection by your adversary. All right, now what if you're on the opposite side of this issue? Well, here are some additional practice pointers in that situation in no particular order. First, object if the proponent of the testimony simply seeks to use a family member as an interpreter rather than a professional. That's the 2019 Smith versus State case where the court said a mother was not allowed to act as the interpreter during trial for her son. Next point, remember that interpreters, translators, aren't summarizing or providing a more polished version of the testimony. It still needs to be word for word or very nearly so. It's not the words of the translator. Next point, raise if appropriate and in an appropriate way the issue of cognition and ask appropriate questions to establish that the witness's competency during the deposition isn't an issue. Also, I recommend that you videotape the deposition as well because that's probably the most complete uh, version of the testimony that you can get, the audio and the video, uh, in order to further evaluate the accuracy of any translation that's being rendered. Next pointer, hire your own speech pathologist to evaluate what the opposing interpreter is doing and to also independently assess what the witness is saying. That's the Czech translator mentioned in the Cohen case. And in that particular case, the Czech translator attended both the deposition and the trial and was allowed by the judge to sit fairly close to the witness to also assess, interpret, translate what the witness was saying. Here's another point also from the Cohen case. Argue that the use of the witness's regular speech pathologist should be prohibited because of their relationship, because the pathologist is not truly neutral or disinterested. Next one, adapt your cross-examination to the limits of the witness. Using your usual fire and brimstone approach to hostile witnesses to create contradictions might not actually work with a speech-impaired deponent because a judge or jury might attribute the contradictions or incoherencies to the complexity of your questions. That's from the SEAL case in the show notes. In appeal on that case, the criminal defendant pointed out that inconsistencies and confusion in the testimony by a witness with speech defects destroyed her credibility and should result in a reversal of the verdict. The appeals court said, well, that argument is unconvincing because the witnesses claimed that she misunderstood the questions seemed legitimate. The court said, with respect to the witness with the severe speech impediment, that defense counsel's use of complex sentences framed in the negative and their use of sudden changes in topic 
might well have confused the witness in her deposition. And so the court says the use of the usual verbal pyrotechnics simply led to incoherent exchanges, which the court attributed to the failure of counsel to adapt their cross-examination technique to fit this witness. Next pointer, make your objections to the testimony by a speech-impaired witness on a timely basis. That's the lesson from the Kissick case in the show notes. Uh, there, the counsel for the criminal defendant objected to the allegedly unintelligible testimony of a speech-impaired prosecution witness, but only raised the objection after the testimony was concluded. In a way, you can understand that because you've really got to hear how that testimony comes out before you can make an argument, make your pitch to the judge that the testimony was largely or entirely unintelligible and should be stricken from the record. But there the appeals court said, well, because you allowed that testimony to come out in its entirety before you objected, your objections were waived. So opportunity lost there. A final point, move in limine to exclude the testimony after deposition but before trial, and also the moment the testimony is offered in front of the jury. All right, that's it for today. As I've said, this is definitely an issue that you need to get out in front of very quickly in your cases in order to ensure that all your testimony is properly captured and presented to your trier of fact. We've got 13 decisions in our show notes today, plus the two links, and those should get you off to a fast start. As always, thank you so much for listening, and be sure to check out the book on which this podcast is based, 10,000 Depositions Later, the premier litigation guide for superior deposition practice, now in its third edition at 450 pages in the print edition and available on Amazon and everywhere else you get your books. We'll talk to you soon.